Good to have the choir back. Say that little child is uh, amen. It's amen, right? <laughs> Some of us are a little less happy that the choir is back, but I'm. <laughs> We're all learners at this. Uh, we we have to figure out how prayer becomes more than something that the preacher talks about on Sunday, something that we do right before we go to sleep or we have a meal. I'm going to suggest that one of the ways that we learn is if we do something new. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little different today. In each of the pews, there's a basket. Would you, everybody, as the basket goes by you, take a pen and take a card. Everybody take a pen and take a card. The pens are primarily for you to take some notes, if you'd like, in uh, your bulletin, but each person should take a pen and uh, take a card. Once you've, uh, once you've done that, uh, I, I'd like to, after you've taken the pen, reach into the pew in front of you and take out a Bible. Take out the Bible. This is a, a countercultural thing for Presbyterians, but we're going to open the Bible up. And we're going to mark in our Bibles today. Find Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is found on page 899. Psalm 103. It's about the middle of the book. Psalm 103. You know, for most of the life of the church, for the last couple thousand years, we would not have had to give much of an introduction to the Psalms being the prayer book of God. Uh, monks used to, to go through the entire Psalter. That's what the book is called, the 150 Psalms. Monks would go through it every week, morning, noon, and night. The Book of Common Prayer from the Episcopalians that the Lutherans and a lot of the other mainline churches use, the Book of Common Prayer gives a way to pray through all the Psalms in a month, morning and evening common prayers. When the Reformation came along, they tried to revive the use of the Psalms by setting them to verse and singing songs in congregational worship for them so that every week people would see this is part of the dialogue between God and God's community. This is the prayer book of the Bible. But today, it's not used that way. Everybody looks for the Psalm that says, now I lay me down to sleep, it's not in there. But everybody would remember, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But the Psalms, other than that, are not familiar territory, probably for lots of reasons. But first, frankly, because if you really read these as prayers, there are really difficult things that are said in here. There are times where the psalmist seems to scream at God, very angry at God, feeling betrayed or deserted. There are other times where the lament turns into anger at others. And that anger seems inappropriate when it seeks retribution on all of our enemies. We're going to talk about that in, in a couple of weeks. Prayers of lament and, and prayers of imprecation. That's where you want God to blast somebody. Part of the problem is that we don't know the theology, the way that the psalmist looked at God in a way that's helpful to us. Most of the reason that we don't read the Psalms as prayers is because they're poetry. They were set in poetic form 
and poetry is always harder for us. We are not a poetic people. We are a PowerPoint people. We want to go through things quickly. And poetry says, this needs to sink in. Listen to this again. It's about images rather than facts. But the Psalms are there to take us deep into our heart. Psalms are not for the head. Psalms take us deep into our heart a thousand times faster than we'd ever get deep into our heart ourselves. The Psalms are like a personal trainer or, or, or a coach. You know they'll help you do good things, but it's very painful, and so you don't do it all by yourselves. The Psalms actually force us to deal with the deep suffering and pain of life, even before anything's gone wrong. While we're doing good, it's hard to read about deep pain and suffering. In the same way, the Psalms force us to pray in ways that praise God and give thanks when we don't feel that way at all. They're like exercise. It's against the grain. So the Psalms push us and pull us emotionally in ways that when we're ignoring the beautiful language... We find, we go, oh really? That's not the way I feel. The most important reason that you should read the Psalms is God's way of teaching you how to pray. This is teaching you the language of God's prayer. The most important reason to read the Psalms is that they force us to deal with the real God the way the real God is. Eugene Peterson is the guy who translated the Bible into that version we call the message. Peterson says this, In our culture, prayers are about us. Left to ourselves, we'll pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing. We'll pray to the part of God we manage to understand. But what's critical is that we speak to the real God, because only the real God can speak back. The Psalms train us. They train our ear for that conversation. They wrestle us into obedience. On our own, left to ourselves, on our own, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. With the help of the Psalms, we practice real faith. Religious fulfillment is a lot more fun, but real faith is a lot more important. What's essential in prayer is not that you learn to express yourself. What's essential in prayer is that you learn to answer the God who is already talking to you. That's what we want to do these next four weeks, to learn what God is saying and make our prayers an answer in that dialogue. For instance, if I were to say, Lord God, heaven and earth, in some ways it's easier to talk to these people than it is to talk to you as if you are right here listening to me. Some people just wonder if I'm talking to myself. But I believe, we believe, that you are here. Speak to us, we pray in your name. Amen. And sometimes we learn best by listening to the way other people have learned to pray. Growing up, I didn't really have a faith base, and as I developed in my faith as an adult, it was kind of a struggle to learn to pray, whereas my kids have always had it around and they don't struggle and they understand to pray for anything. 
Finn is my five-year-old and he'll overhear conversations sometimes and he'll ask about it and you know when it's ever a kind of serious situation we kind of pray about it and I don't ever really correct him in his prayers. I don't know if that sounds strange but I just kind of the genuine natural prayer and the way that they pray about things like this summer we had um, a friend whose brother was going to have a CAT scan and they're claustrophobic and so Finn wanted to understand what what is the CAT scan, what do they do and explaining that to him you know, for Finn, it was like, okay. And he had done BBS here, so he kind of did a prayer and he said, you know, I just wanna pray that when you see those lights in the tube that you know that it's Jesus, you know? And like, that was so genuine for him because that's what he related it to. I think he's found his way of praying all the time instead of asking like, should we pray for this? Should we not pray for that? Because I want him to pray for anything. I think any prayer is important. It can't be too big or too small. So. My experience of prayer is talking with God in any fashion. I was raised in a more traditional uh, interactive prayer where I did all the talking. But when I was in college, I met a guy who introduced me to this new style where it was a lot more listening uh, and a lot more uh, fluid in its engagement with God. The first time that he brought me to this uh, uh, type of prayer, I I was just shocked at what he was doing. He was walking around the room with his eyes open. Uh, he was not sitting calmly, bowing his head. And this was such a strange type of prayer. But I eventually realized that it, it allowed me to, to engage with God more directly. And the way that this guy prayed, he was, he was actively talking and listening with God simultaneously. And I have enjoyed that so much. It's brought me so much closer to God in this heart connection that I have sought out other guys to partake in this practice of prayer. As somebody who grew up without talking to God is still learning and her kid is teaching her and somebody who's done this all their lives as far as they can remember is still learning how to listen for God's voice. That's where the Psalms come in. They teach us how to pray. Our call to worship, frankly, was Psalm 103. We'd like to do it again as a prayer. We talked last week about the idea that sometimes different postures, kneeling or putting our face to the ground, uh, sitting alone or even standing, help us to focus. And so I'd like you to pray with me by standing. You've got your Bibles there. You don't need the Bibles for right now, but leave them open to Psalm 103. Let's see if we can together pray this psalm over our past that begins this way. It says, Bless the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, bless His holy name. Who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases. Who satisfies your desires with good things so your youth is renewed like the eagles. He made known his way to Moses. Let me stop there for just a second. Do you hear what that says? Remember last week, Moses said, teach me your ways. 
This is somebody who is hundreds of years after Moses. And he says, God did teach Moses his ways. He made known his ways to Moses, showing his power to Israel. He will not always accuse nor harbor anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. That isn't something we teach our kids. It's something our hearts need to know. Like a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on all who fear him. God knows how we're formed. He remembers we are dust. Mortal life is like a grass. The wind blows and it's gone, remembered no more. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his vast domain. Praise the Lord, O soul. Amen. Be seated. We said it once in the call to worship, we tried to pray it now, but it's a poem and it bounces off unless you spend time with it. So let's keep the book open to Psalm 103 and see if God can teach you how to speak to him. This psalm is an example of what's called meditative prayer. It's a meditation. That's part of what Skip Powell was talking about. He was learning that Psalm 103... (coughs) is addressed to his soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Prayer that's meditation is talking to your soul rather than just listening to your heart. Our culture says, listen to your heart. Forget that. Your heart's crazy. We need to talk to our heart. Meditative prayer means taking your heart in hand and reasoning with it and showing your heart the truth of God until your heart can bless and rejoice in God. We are not helpless before our emotions. Your emotions are often not reality. This doesn't mean that when we talk to God, we deny our emotions. The Psalms are filled with more anguish and more excitement, more dreams and more despair than most of us are comfortable saying out loud. We face it all, but a prayer that's meditation where we pull out our soul and look at it is a dialogue with our heart in the sight of God. It's a way of looking back at what's happened in our life and trying to make sense to give it meaning and reassurance. How do we do that? Together, let's look at the psalm. The first words of this meditative prayer are actually a command. Bless the Lord. 
We want to be blessed. I, I just read a post this week that talks about the dangers of saying, I'm so blessed. Because what I'm so blessed really means in our culture is, I got a lot of money. I'm feeling really good. And I'm better than you. I am blessed. That's not apparently what the psalmist means by blessing. The psalmist is not talking about being healthy or having enough money or even being happy. The psalmist does not seem to be concerned whether you are fulfilled in your life. Instead, the psalm says what's important is that the people who have a relationship with God are filled with gratitude. They have a sense of freedom to bless something in the Bible is the opposite of cursing something. Some things we curse, whether it's traffic or the parking ticket. Some things we bless. When we bless people, we affirm them, we delight in them, we seek their fulfillment. When we bless, we want them to have the deepest desires of their hearts. Blessing people is to be grateful for them. So to bless God, it says, bless the Lord. To bless God is more than to praise God. Find a good thing about God and say, this is neat that you're like this. Blessing God, well, Eugene Peterson says that Psalm 103 expresses the experience of being saved. This isn't what it's intellectually like to be saved. This is what it feels like to be saved. It's a response, a meditation on that. When we receive the benefits of life with God, we become grateful people. But in order to be grateful, you have to take time to receive and recognize the gifts and believe that you are blessed. You need to learn to look back, to take time out, to take your heart out, to look back and see the benefits that God has given you so that your soul learns to respond with gratitude, so that you're not anxious. You expect that God will bless. The verse says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. You know what that means? It means we forget our benefits. He is saying you need to remember your benefits. What benefits do we forget? Well, the the heart of this, and if you want to underline in this in your pew Bible, that's great. The heart of this benefit of prayer is about seeing God as angry. Many of you feel like God is that angry judge or the parent who can't wait for you to come home so you can get tongue-lashed again or even whipped. Who wants to talk to that God? In verses 8 through 10, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He won't always accuse. He won't be angry forever. He doesn't treat us the way our sins deserve. God does not want to be angry. Martin Luther. You remember Martin Luther from the Reformation days? Martin Luther was so afraid that God was angry at him that he went to confession every day. His confessor sat there and goes, Martin, you haven't had enough time to do that. But he was afraid that God was angry at him. Luther said once, God's wrath is God's strange work. 
God's anger is what happens when the goodness of God comes into contact with rebellion and sin. God's anger is what happens when the goodness of God comes into contact with rebellion or sin. That means that God's anger is temporary. It is not his default face. God's default face is not, God's default face is yes. As soon as it's not in contact with rebellion or sin, the joy of God comes. After God deals with sin through redemption, anger will cease. God will not keep angry forever, but his love is permanent. So the first thing is that the Lord forgives all your sins. That means what, the, what uh, Van was trying to talk about with the kids. People accuse you of doing this. God says, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. He is forgiving the guilt of your sins. You don't have to hide it or pretend, blame somebody else. No matter how extensive our sins have been, it says he forgives all your sins. And second, it says he heals all your diseases. Now, I got to tell you, when I first started to read this, I thought that this probably meant that God would promise to heal his people. But I think that since it's connected to forgive all our sins, it's another part of the idea of God forgiving us. There is the idea that when you break God's law, even if just in your mind, you're guilty, and that's a guilt sentence, and then when you break God's law, there are consequences. David has adultery with Bathsheba. He's guilty of that. But even if that's forgiven... There are consequences. He has a child. The child dies. This is addressing the idea that God will heal us from the consequences that our sin brings us. I I think that we need to be reminded that God is not angry. Some of you have sins that you won't let yourself be forgiven for. Some of you have sins in your life that you won't forgive the other person for. This is what this prayer is about. Teach me to be forgiven. Teach me to forgive other people. The third benefit in this psalm that I forget is it says, God redeems your life from the pit in verse 4. The pit is obviously the grave. Maybe, maybe the prayer is asking God to rescue us from premature death, but that's probably unlikely. More likely, this is confidence that people who learn to pray this psalm will be ushered into eternal life when they die. It's a declaration that they will experience the resurrection from the dead. He redeems your life from the pit. Death is not the end. Remember that. The fourth benefit of looking back at God's blessing is that God crowns you with love and compassion. That's verse 4, right? This simply may mean that God loves you, but that word crown gives the idea there's something more going on here. God gives his love to us in a way that makes you feel special, honored, built up. The word for his love is chesed. Chesed. It's the same word that will be used in verse 17 that says God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. But what it means here, what it means here 
is steadfast love or unfailing love, binding love, guaranteed love, bomb-proof love. You can't do anything to get rid of this love. It could be called gospel love. Love that'll never change, that doesn't come or go depending on how you do. No matter how bad you do, God says his love is from everlasting to everlasting. The fifth benefit is the last one. Here it says, the Lord will satisfy your desires in a way that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is God's gift of hope. It's not going to say you get everything you want. Uh, Yesterday, literally yesterday, as I'm coming here to work on the sermon at noon, I drive on 66th Street between those two little lakes, and this eagle flies by. I thought, how great is this to live in a place where an eagle flies by? And the soaring of that eagle reminded me of a heart that yearns to be free, that that's what God wants. These are the benefits that God gives us when we pull out our heart and look at it. He says he forgives your sins and heals your disease. He redeems your life from the pit. You don't have to worry about death anymore. He satisfies your soul. And he gives you strength when you need it. Seeing the benefits of God in our past brings gratitude instead of grumpiness. Grateful people have to have somebody that they're grateful to. They have to have something they're grateful for, but they have to be grateful to somebody. What we call somebody who gives us benefits, we call them our benefactor, right? Our benefactor, the person who gives us benefits. Uh, That's from the Latin word bene, small word bene, which means good, and factor, which is where we get the word factory, the producer. That means a benefactor is the person who produces good things. A little engine that keeps on giving blessings to us. John Ortberg says, uh, to really be grateful, to really be grateful, not only do we recognize that we are gifted and given benefits, but we also come to see that it's not random. They're not accidents. They're coming from somebody who loves you. It's not a result of just you being good. We're American. We're self-reliant. This is saying that you're not lucky. You are blessed by a God who loves you. The Apostle James says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of the heavenly lights. The prayer that the psalmist is trying to teach his own heart, that we should be teaching our hearts finishes with these three powerful images. God's love toward us is as high as the heavens are above the earth. The kids have no idea how far that is. They just know it's a long way away. I just, did you guys see that image from the satellite that took a picture of sunset on Pluto as the satellite sped out into space? That's a tiny fraction of how high God's love is. It says, his mercy and forgiveness is as far as the east is from the west. Infinite. Our salvation comes from a God who says, oh, you did that? I I forgot. 
How come you remembered? I have forgiven it as far as the east is from the west. I'm sorry this wasn't in the sermon. The reason we did that stupid little children's sermon is that 25 years ago, we've been here 26 years, 25 years ago, an associate pastor, Virgil Lee, did that children's sermon. It was great. Our little four-year-old, Katie, was sitting there, and the very next week in worship, we're doing a bitted, silent prayer of confession, and she's sitting next to her mommy, and Laura hears Katie say, Dear God, please take all my bad sins and throw them as far as the east is from the west. That's the gospel. That we are not just forgiven, we are, it's forgotten. And then the last one it says is that God's knowledge and care for us is like a father that has compassion on his children. Unconditional, unlimited. Tim Keller talks about the idea that a father's love has has two parts. On the one hand, nobody knows a, a kid better than the parents. They know all their weaknesses. Verse 14, he remembers that we are as dust. An adult parent can see right into the heart of a kid because the kid does not have the sense to hide their selfishness. They haven't learned how to conceal their impatience or their lack of understanding. God knows how shallow and weak and impotent we can be. But the second thing, a father has compassion on his kids. The weakness of our children may break our hearts, but it doesn't stop our love. That's the way God responds. The sillier, the weaker, the needier a child is, the more a parent's heart is bound to the child. They'll do anything to get the kid back. Because God loves us completely, God will do anything to get us back. God is not a king who wants to rule you. God is a parent who wants to shower you with love. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. The Lord is kind to you. Let that go from your head to your heart, and it will fill you with gratitude. I said that we wanted to do more than listen to this and underline our Bibles. I'd like us to try this. So I'm going to ask Heather to come up and, and, and play a little, and I ask you to take out these cards that you have with the pens. And on the one side, it says, uh, I give thanks for. That means forget not his benefit. You should write down one of the benefits that God has given you. Or, or use the other side of the card. The gift of forgiveness is a blessing. I thank God for forgetting that. I thank God for forgiving that. Or I ask God, I ask God to help that stay in the past. That you might be forgiven. He knows. He wants you to be reminded. We'd like to give you a a minute. Whether you want to bless or ask forgiveness. And and then as we sing our closing song, I'd ask any of you, not all of you, but any of you that want to, to come up and take a little stick pin and maybe just place it. Ouch. Here. 
don't sign it. But let's show God that we remember. If you're up in the balcony, please come down and stay down if you want to. That's great. Or wait until after the benediction and come down then. Up to you. Don't feel like you have to. But this could, this could make your heart grateful and be what God would want to say to you today. Lord Jesus, I thank you for all the benefits that you have offered us. And I pray that you will remind us of them so that they fill our hearts with gratitude and our lives with love. In your name, amen.